0: You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. Awesome. I wasn't expecting that at all. Actually, I had a few people planted and they said, you know, start, the, start that as soon as I get up now. Um, I Really, really, really good to be back. I, uh, I'm just so grateful for the time away. My wife and I and uh, my kids were able to be away for, well, I was out for about four and a half, five weeks, a little mini sabbatical here this summer and um, it was really good. So just really, really good. Thank you. I, I know many of you helped support that, allow that to take place. I want to thank the elders, especially Josh in in particular as well, uh, as well for for filling the pulpit. Uh, Josh has a lot of wisdom to offer, and I was very grateful for you to be able to get to know him a little bit more uh, with the time that I was away, that he was able to fill the pulpit and preach so wonderfully. I was able to follow along through the podcast while I was away uh, as well to hear his series on following Jesus. And uh, again, it was just a wonderful time with me and my family. Being away for that time period doesn't sound like a lot. Um, or maybe it does, I don't know, from your station, but uh, for me, I was thinking it was probably eight to nine years, maybe more to, for for that amount of time that I had gone without actually speaking uh, or or teaching something, and and so that may sound nothing, but I, I don't know, for five straight weeks, really, I didn't speak, preach, teach, or say anything to anyone. Well, no, I did talk to some people, uh, my beloved wife and children, but I didn't have to give an opinion or say anything or preach or teach or talk at all. I got to go visit other churches and sit in the church, and nobody knew who I was. It was amazing, Uh, like these kinds of things. It was great, but that feeling uh, to kind of let go and to just listen a little bit uh, was very good for my soul. I want to say thank you for that time Uh, A couple of people asked me, did you kind of accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? And I had a few goals for myself, uh, a few things that I was trying to accomplish, but they weren't exactly uh, a checklist kind of a thing. Uh, did it, did you learn what you aimed to learn, someone asked, or did you get out of it what you wanted to get out of it? And frankly, those aren't wrong questions. I've asked those of myself, uh, but I think one of the main things that I tried to do and one of the main objectives of getting out of this time away, uh, was to, to really not put a, a lot of objectives, to not have that checklist of doing for God that I needed to do, uh, and simply try to be a little bit more, um. Dallas Willard said, one of the greatest spiritual attainments is the capacity to do nothing. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if I agree with that, but it makes me think for a second, right? And for a moment, for me in my position to be able to just do nothing um, and to just be and not have to do in order to be approved of was, was very helpful and healthy for me. And not that those are things anyone else puts on me. I often put those on myself, uh, but, but for, for a time to be. And so I think one of my main goals is someone asked me, what was your main goal for your time away, your sabbatical? And I, I kind of just said it, it kind of just came to me, and I, I was just like, it was to be quiet. And as some of you know me, I tend to talk a lot, right? You know, we were in deacon's meeting today, and I was like, "I well, here we go. I'm going to see if I remember how to do this. And somebody's like, oh, you'll be fine, you know? I was like, oh, well, I was like, okay. But I, you know, I tend to talk a lot. And so just simply to be in a place where I could be quiet and not have to do any of that was very, very good for me. Um, it's very good for my family. We are able to spend a lot of time together, a lot of just vacation time together, enjoying times with family and the kids Uh, But also time for me to get away, more just being with God, less doing for God was was kind of a little bit my goal, to restore my relationship with Him personally, and and to allow that to be the place that I can serve from, and uh, kind of look into that. And I was able to get alone towards the end of the sabbatical, uh, kind of on my own. I was able to get alone, just me and God, and the woods. I went out camping on my own. I know a friend has a little cabin out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. No running water, uh, no electricity, uh, no, uh, no Wi-Fi. Uh, that was nice. And uh, so no, nothing like that. And, uh, you know, I'm very manly, so I, I just felt in my mind, I can do this. I can spend a few nights alone by myself in the woods, right? There's a whole TV show where people do that, and I'm like, I can do this. I got scared half to death by a... Um, by a, by, a, by a tiny mouse, in fact. Uh, and I screamed and I yelled, but no one heard me, because I was by myself. And then I look around, and it's like, no one saw that. Whoo, you know, and your heart goes down, you're like, it's okay, you're alive, you know. And so I felt like I had to admit that, because I didn't want any of you thinking I was that kind of macho man. I know many of you think of that, of me. So, uh, But there was a... Um, Also there was a cool thing, there was a young buck, actually a deer came right up to my cabin, just him and me in the field all by ourselves, he came within like 25 feet, it was actually really, really cool, Uh, it was so peaceful, so quiet there, and that's when I was reading uh, my Bible, no I didn't have some kind of shack moment, some of you are wondering or whatever, Um, but uh, this uh, Psalm 73 hit me, it's the Psalm I'm preaching on today. And it was a, a psalm that I was reading, I was reading through a variety of passages just on my own, and, and it was something that just struck me, I don't know what it is, but there's something about this psalm that speaks to a lot of the things that I've felt and, and, and spoken to some of the things that I've wanted to communicate. Psalm 73 was something I was, I guess you could say, resonating with. It's a, it's a psalm that I've read before, you can turn there, we'll read it here in a brief moment. I found myself resonating with it, where and then I discovered as I've also been studying the life of David somewhat, but this is not a psalm written by David. Psalm 73, if you look under it, begins book three of psalms, and it says, God is my strength, my portion forever, is kind of the heading. And then it says, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph. Asaph is a guy I didn't know a lot about, if I'm honest with you. And I started studying his life a little bit. Uh, and it's interesting because he's viewed as a director of music or a worship leader. <laughs> Actually, in First Chronicles six verse thirty-one, it says, "These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there." And he gives a long list, but it says they ministered with song before the tabernacle and the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. They performed their service according to the order. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 39, it goes on, and then eventually it lists his name, his brother Asaph, who stood on his right hand, namely Asaph, the son of Berechiah, son of Shemiah. Asaph was basically, you could say, a worship leader. 2 Chronicles 29, 30 also mentions him. Hezekiah, the king of the officials, commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and the words of Asaph. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down in worship. Today, we sang songs and worship uh, songs, old songs, new songs written by a variety of people, different lyrics, different culture, different time. Uh, but we led uh, as a group of musicians. Uh, I'm very thankful that these musicians lead us in worship than others, right? We're very thankful for the skills and talents many of them have that they're willing to give back, but they're leading us in worship. Something that's been done uh, throughout the church for thousands of years, and even in the Old Testament as David and Solomon and Hezekiah set up directors of worship and song, and Asaph was one of them. In fact, some commentators say that he had a little uh, kind of music school for there are those mentioned as the sons of Korah and the sons of Asaph uh, performed music for the people of God, and it viewed it almost like a a school of music, Asaph as the head uh, teacher of the music and the leader, and he had people who were training under him. It it was just kind of a fascinating thing to study. But it's in Asaph's, yes, uh, this psalm most likely was sung, most likely recited in some way but it 's in the the words that I find so powerful it, it is they 're very candid they 're very uh, kind of straightforward he just he, he is saying what he feels, and he is uh, going through a kind of a time where he has which is the title of today 's message is a, a paradigm shift he 's experiencing a moment of clarity and frustration and He feels hard done by, and then he has a shift in his vision where God aligns his thinking uh, about and regarding really seeing things from his viewpoint, God's viewpoint, rather than his own. A paradigm shift is a radical shift in one ways of looking at something to another way and uh, really could say a change in a person's worldview. The way you see something, the situation or a person, or, or the way you view the world has been radically, dramatically shifted, often very suddenly, and you're going to sense that as we read the Psalm. So I want you to be looking out for that. We're going to read Psalm 73 together, and, and as kind of in the middle, you might pick up on it, you're all of a sudden, you kind of see Him shift. He begins in uh, truth, and he begins complaining, almost open complaints, and then, then he has a shift, and then at the end it, it ends kind of where he began begins. So with that kind of perspective, let's look at Psalm seventy three. Psalm seventy three, verse one, it says, "Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart." This is where he begins. Then here comes what he thinks. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, or as the CSB says, they have a very easy life. Their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Verse 9 says, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut through the earth. Isn't that an interesting phrase? A strutting tongue. You know what that looks like, right? Verse 10, therefore, his people turn back to them. They find no fault in them. They do whatever they want, and everyone flaunts to them. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. You can almost hear, well, what good has that done me? Verse 14, for all the day I have long been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Then verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them to fall, to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like an animal or a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask for wisdom and understanding, just like Asaph searched. When he sought to understand these things, he thought it was a wearisome task. And God, your word can at times feel wearisome to us as we attempt to understand the depth thereof. Give us wisdom, give us guidance, give us direction, Lord. But more than just information, would you transform us today? Would we find ourselves transformed by submitting to the truth of your word today? That we would find our lives are different, our relationships are different, our view of the world and the situation that we might find ourselves in today is different because God, you have altered our vision to see you. Help us, Father, to be that way today. Give us grace, give us understanding. Be with even the children who are being instructed in the other rooms today. May you bless them and all that are in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73. Again, he begins with this moment where you could say he has this, this beginning, a, a faith honestly doubting, you could say. James Boyce says, Psalm 73 is an example of faith honestly, honestly doubting what it does, in fact, believe. When I read that, it hit me, and I had to read it again, so I'll read it for you. It's an example of faith, honestly doubting what it does, in fact, believe. Maybe that makes sense to you. Maybe, maybe that doesn't. Maybe that you're at that point in your life where you've experienced something like that. But for me, oftentimes, I find this to be true. I believe that I help my unbelief. I, I believe and I have faith God is good, but I can at times attest to the person in my heart that honestly doubts what in fact I know to be true, right? <laughs> And so it's in this beginning that I find so encouraging, for he begins with verse 1, God is good. God is good. It's, it's really clear. It's really simple. It's really easy. It begins with, look, truly, God is good to Israel, to the chosen people of God, and truly you could say the same. God is good to his church, is he not? He's good to those who are pure in heart. You give your heart to him, you allow yourself to be innocent, as as Sam was saying, to be humbled before the mighty hand of God, to walk in humility. God will pour out his goodness upon you. We know this to be true. We sing about it here, I'd say almost every week. <laughs> we sing about God's goodness. And that means if God is is good, then He cannot act poorly or wrongly to His people. If He's truly good, I can trust His actions. I can trust His heart and His control over every situation. He's good to the pure in heart. Not those who are ceremonially pure on the outside, but those who are pure in heart, inwardly. And so C.H. Spurgeon says it's well to make sure of what we do know. For this will be the good anchor hold for us when we find ourselves molested by those mysterious storms which arise from things we do not always understand. We find ourselves clinging to an anchor of something that we do know, something that we do understand. Yes, life can be complicated and storms may come and go and understand we do at times and understand we don't. We find ourselves clinging to something we do know, the anchor of the fact that God is good. We sing here sometimes, I think, and even you're familiar, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? For the Bible tells me so. Oh, that's a nice simple thing for children to do and sing at Sunday school, but another thing to be lived out in your adult life, Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. God is good all the time. He's good. But then we find Asaph quickly stepping into a place that maybe some of us are uncomfortable to go with at times, or at least maybe we're uncomfortable to admit that we find ourselves in this place at times. Verse 2, he says, but as for me, I know this to be true, but my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I know God is good to those who are pure in heart, but am I really one of those who are pure in heart? Will I receive His grace and mercy? The Lord is good to His saints, but am I one of those saints? Am I one of the ones that He actually is good to? So I stand upright today, and I stand upon the foundation of God's goodness, that He is good, and I trust Him, and I have faith in Him, but there are times when I feel that my feet are slipping, He says. Ever stand on something that feels unsure and unstable? We are at the lake the other day and at the ocean during the, at the Cape, and my daughter's trying to stand on one of those boogie boards. Have you ever seen those at the ocean? You know, those, those things you can surf along these, these uh, East Coast waves? And she's trying to get on top of it, right? It's one of the most difficult things is you're trying to stand on it, and then it throws you off. It's unstable. It barely holds you. And then the other day I saw somebody on one of those full-on paddle boards, it's flat, it's nice, it's wonderful, but even those, they rock back and forth, and you've got to get your stability to stand on one of those big paddle boards, and yet you can find yourselves, when the waves come, you find yourselves slipping, and you find yourself unstable, and you're going to fall down, and in many ways, I feel like our spiritual lives and our faith in God can find ourselves in this place. I, I once was sure, but right now, I'm just not so sure. My feet feel to be Slippery. And then he goes into some honest moments of candor, candor, or, or, or just honest statements. And some of you are good at this. Some of you are a little bit more honest uh, than others. Many of us will think certain things. I mean, you, some of you are really good at just saying it, you know? Just say it how it is, right? That's kind of what he does. Uh, this is what he is, views in his observations. He kind of just starts saying it as it is. He admits a few things, and what he admits is that he feels this, verse 3, I, I was envious of the arrogant. <laughs> it's funny, Sam spoke on humility today, <laughs> we're talking so much, there's verse 3 about pride and humility here. I was envious and jealous of those who were proud in their lives and seemed that they could get away with whatever they want. I saw the successes of everyone else around me and I thought to myself, man, they have it easy, why am I the one who always has it hard? Man, their life certainly seems a lot easier than the one I've been di- given. The cards they've been given, I wish I had those. I, the ones I've been dealt with, man, who could blame me? And so he says that he, was, he was envious when he saw the prosperity and everything and the success of all, everyone else around him. And then he's honest with it and he admits this and he ultimately is saying, look, you'll find out at the end But it, really, he, he knows this is a sin in a sense to envy and to be jealous. But he's admitting what he feels and James Montgomery Boyce again says here, he, he, he sins, he talks about this uh, envy, is that God is, is not treating us the way we think He should. And that other people seem to be doing way better than we are, and that we have to struggle for a living while they coast along without any obvious trouble. Our problem is envy, jealousy, comparison, and that ultimately envy is criticizing God. It is a sin, and that is hard. And he goes on and he says, well, what did I see with my jealous and envious eyes? Verse 4, 5, 6, 7, really all the way you'll see uh, in some of the notes that I've printed out. Some of you might have them, some of you might not. It might be online as well. But the candid complaints, this section thing, this is really verses 4 through 15. Verse 1, 2, and 3 gives us this way of, of walking through this way of looking at these honest questioning. And then he gives these candid complaints, verses 4 through 15. We read through it once, and I'll give you a summary of some of the things that I kind of put some of these in my own words, kind of rehashed some of these phrases from the ESV and put some of it in uh, uh, the JSV, Jordan's version here, right? And so as I think through it and try to make it feel what I say, and actually the CSB says too that that they have an easy life here in verse 4. They have no pangs or difficulty until they die. The, the wicked and those who, who shake their fist at God seem to get away with everything. They're fat, sleek, healthy, and attractive, you could say. <laughs> they, they don't get in trouble like others seem to do. They're not starving for food. They have all that they need. They're not stricken with challenges like others seem to be. They wear their pride as a necklace, they, like a garnish or a dish on the outside for everyone to see, like a statement of how great and successful they are and how arrogantly they can get away with whatever they want. Their violence surrounds them like the clothes they wear. It's like the very things that they wear to show others of how aggressive they can be. Humility's not part of their life. Who needs that? Their eyes, as the Bible says, swell with fatness. It's really the sense of they swell with ease. Their lives are comfortable and easy, right? You ever looked at someone else's life and and viewed that? Their life seems so much easier than mine. Their, Their hearts pour over with foolishness. They can do whatever they want and get away with it. They scoff at others, too. They speak with malice and anger towards other people. They oppress people. They blaspheme with their words towards heaven. And then those same words strut around with pride and arrogance so everyone can see, like a tongue strutting down the way, saying whatever they want. Their words strut around with arrogance and pride. You could say, if uh, Asaph was writing this today, their social media profiles strut their amazing power and and influence over everyone else, how much better they are than you, right? You know what that looks like. They, they say and they do whatever they want, and then not only that, people flock to them and follow them and want to be like them. These foolish people find no fault in them. They love their foolishness and they listen to whatever they say. Look at verse 10. Therefore his people will turn back to them and find no fault in them, no matter what they say or do. Wow. They even make statements slandering God's name. They make statements doubting God's existence, doubting God's intelligence, They say God doesn't know what He's doing. Ultimately, this is a summary of the wicked, those who are against God. Yet, they always seem to be comfortable and successful. And why is that? Always rich, busy, doing what they want without a care in the world. This is the feelings, the hearts. If if we admit the thoughts that go through our hearts of the, the struggles that we endure are not what they endure... And then he gives uh, an honest statement in verse 13. It says, those who don't seem to care anything about you, Lord, you give success to, and yet look at me, verse 13, all in vain. I've kept my heart clean, like for nothing. I've wasted my time avoiding the sinful pleasures of the world. I've wasted my time. I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence, and yet what good has that done for me? Have you ever felt that? Kept my heart pure, done the right thing. Yet made no difference. I'm still stricken with challenges and difficulties, and I. And yet you could say, I'm the one here. He says I, I keep my heart clean, and all the day long I'm stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse fifteen. I, if I speak thus, I feel like I'm betraying people. And he says, if I speak the truth, I'm the one who is rebuked. You could say, why? bother with any of this stuff. Why bother go to church? Why bother follow Jesus? Why bother with any of this if it doesn't seem to make much of a difference? You ever seen those Kentucky Derby? I feel like that was on a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and those little derby races are on at different different times and you ever seen those horse races? A lot of times those horses will be wearing something on the side of their heads and you know what I'm talking about? Those blinders. You ever seen those? And put them on a horse I know Many of you know about this stuff more than I do, but they wear those blinders, and one thing I've been told is often to keep those horses from being distracted with what's behind them, what's beside them, but to keep them looking forward. And it makes sense, because when you're in a crowded aspect of the horses racing against one another, you don't want the horse thinking about all the times about what's right next to them, you want them running straight ahead. The horse who keeps looking as to where he is going isn't the, is, is the one who's going to win the race, but the one who's turning his head and his eyes are distracted by comparing himself with all the other horses that are nearby is not the one who's going to finish. It's not the one who's going to win. It's not the one who gets the crown. So it's hard at times in this world where everyone's lives is shoved in front of your face all the time. We live very public lives today social media, and a variety of ways that we have to be able to stay connected, which are wonderful tools, but at times are ways in which we can shove our lives in front of each other in order to compare our lifestyles with one another, and it can be very challenging. And so the point of of this, in some ways, is is this aspect of, of remaining focused on Jesus and not being distracted with comparing ourselves constantly with everyone else around us who always seems to be doing better with us than us. There's always someone who's doing better than you at whatever you think you're doing well, right? I can guarantee you will always find someone out there. And so the fact is, is can we be content? Can we be in a place where we can simply come to Jesus and He is really enough? I think ultimately that's the question we're left with with the rest of the psalm. Is God really enough? And He's going to drill that home to us at the end here. But I love this. Right in the middle, we get this beginning of a paradigm shift. We get the beginning of a movement in his thinking. He's been complaining. It's been a little tough. It's been hard. It's been honest. And then, boom, right here in verse 16. But then I thought how to understand this. Like, how, do, how do I really think this through? How do I understand this? And man, it was wearisome and tiresome for me. It was hard to understand it. It was difficult, he says. It was hard. Life doesn't always seem to add up the way I think it should add up, right? Does that, if we're being honest, right? And then he says, verse 17, until, here's the shift, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. I, I went into the sanctuary of God and I don't seem to be understanding, but I do know something that I should do. I, I don't know of all the answers, but I do know one who does, and that's God. I can't give you the the definitions and the answers to all these complicated situations, so what am I going to do? I'm going to draw near to God. I'm going to go to the sanctuary. You could say in colloquial terms, I'm going to go to church. I'm I'm going to have my vision altered. I'm going to allow myself to to make sure I'm thinking properly, and if I'm not, I'm going to submit myself to the sanctuary of God, to the place of God, to the holy dwelling relationship of God. Notice he doesn't quit. When he questions. He doesn't leave when he has doubts. He doesn't allow his doubts and questions to crush him. And he doesn't, you could say, deconstruct or deconvert. He acts as uh, what he knows what to do. He does it. He gets up, goes to church. He comes into the sanctuary, or the, you could just say, the presence of God. He draws near to God, and it's in that place or space that he finds answers. He finds understanding and discernment. J.C. Ryle says, to understand, you often must first believe. Sometimes we don't have everything laid out for us, but often it takes the first step of faith in order for understanding to come. It's in our belief that we then often find understanding. Not that they are two, I would say, you, not necessarily that you separate them completely. But I think sometimes it takes our humble, childlike faith to believe and trust God. Then God will open the doors of understanding. For it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. We find ourselves in that place, in that space, in the sanctuary where we're in fearing of God in His proper way. We find ourselves understanding. Sometimes it's, it's those simple ways, right? It just, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? <laughs> how do you understand all these, it's one bite at a time. You do what you know to do, and oftentimes it's simply walking in obedience. And I think what he does here, which I find, is often just comes down to simple worship. Worship. He comes to the sanctuary and he worships God. He worships God. He, he doesn't know how to do and understand everything, but he comes to the sanctuary and he goes to God and he worships. And you could say in a sense, right, that, that that's kind of what I'm challenging us today even with. If we're going to get real practical, do what you're doing today. You might not have all the answers and you have questions going through your mind even right now about certain things you're going through, but you're in the right place. You're with the people of God. You're surrounded by the community of God. You're sitting under the preaching of God. You've allowed yourself to have your eyes lifted up and gaze up to Him and to sing His praises, even though it might have hurt today because maybe what you've experienced recently. I don't know, but you go through that place of obedient worship. God, I will worship you. I don't understand everything, but you are good. It's in that place that I feel like that is a, a foundation that allows us to stand and allows us to then understand what He's doing. And So it's in church, it's in the place that we find ourselves surrounded by a people of God that allow our vision to get from my life and my simple stuff and my problems to then have our vision lifted and to look around and to see all these people who are here are also going through similar things that I've been through who have a lot more wisdom at times to be able to go through situations and navigate the challenges in life. And so when you come together, it's more than just coming and attending and sitting in a seat and dealing with all the craziness of getting your kids checked in and all this and all that. And my daughter was crying on my shoulder before I went up here. maybe you know, Dealing with all the family stuff and the busyness or the awkwardness of church at times or that people, that person you forgot their name again, right? You know, these things of like, what do I... Church is a lot of times about just simply coming together and encouraging one another to take that next day, that next step of obedient worship to the one that we believe in, but we have trouble fully understanding at times. Come together and rally and look around. And that's why sometimes even here at Hope, we do have lights on here so you can see each other. And I can see you, because I don't like preaching to a dark crowd, okay? But I can see you and I look in your face and I look in your eyes and I know your name, I know who you are, and that's so important because we're a family. We can support each other. We can encourage each other. That worship ultimately puts us in a place in the sanctuary, in a place where we have our vision altered. We have a paradigm shift every week. You can say, I, Pastor, I don't really remember what Josh preached on last week. That's okay. I don't remember what I preached on a little week before either, right? Sometimes we don't maybe remember all the answers, Sunday school answers. But did you have a moment where you came in, you submitted yourself, you humbled yourself, and you had your vision corrected, vision altered? You had a paradigm shift in your thinking, and if you withdraw from that for too long, the fearful aspect is our vision is being only influenced by me, myself, and I, but rather when I submit myself to a church, a people, a, a com- this is what Josh preached about last week, the community, following Jesus as a community, as a people, as a church, and when we come together, we allow ourselves to have that vision altered To have our worldview changed and directed by God and the people of God. Not just our own opinions or our own current state of feelings. Not saying feelings aren't right. Asaph tells you his feelings. He tells you his feelings real clear. He's real honest. But his feelings were incorrect. And so it is when he came to the presence of God, and to his sanctuary that he found correction for his feelings, understanding for his thoughts and questions, and answers for those questions. So let's be a place where we come, we worship through song, we worship through participation, attendance, service, you worship through giving, that'll change and alter your vision, won't it? You can give to the church and to the people of God, where you take your money that you earned, it's my money, whoa, whoa, wait, whose money is it again, right? Let's have our vision corrected that this is something that God has blessed me with. What does he want me to do with it? Now I give, not because I'm supposed to give 10%. That's what you got to do. We give because it's an act of worship. So we give back so that God can use that in ways that I can't use currently here. But it can bless great numbers of people in the area, and it can advance the gospel. And so it's these ways that alter our thinking about everything in life. Our vision is corrected to see things the way they really are and the way they're supposed to be. And so when we have that vision corrected, we then need to be willing to tell the truth and to listen to the truth. And that's what he does over the next couple of verses. This is 18 through 22. He tells the truth. He kind of tells it as it is because ultimately 18, 19, 20, he's ultimately saying like, Look, the end of those people who I thought were so prosperous and wonderful, that might be currently, but the end of their lives certainly isn't that. For it's in fact me who thought I was on slippery slope. They're the ones who are on slippery places, for they will fall to ruin in the end. The judge will come and he will judge between the righteous and the unrighteous. Is Ultimately what he's saying is their lives are vain and empty and they are brief. The life of the one who follows Jesus is an eternal living water. It is like their lives will vanish away. like It's like when you wake up from a dream, he says. I don't remember my dreams very often. I'll tell you that, last night I remembered my dream, and it was weird, because I I think I knew I was preaching on dreams, I had something about this, and then it was like, you're going to remember your dream, I don't know, it was weird. I remembered my dream, and it was a scary one, I remember, we had lost my daughter Taylor. And it was, I didn't even tell you about this, hon, but I I woke up, and I I, I literally, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I, I had to think to myself, is Taylor okay? Like, we we were in, like, busy New York City. We never go to New York City. I don't know why. We were in busy crowds of people, and we were in and out of restaurants and all this stuff, and then we just lost track of mind, and then we were like, where's Taylor? And then literally... She was gone, and we were spending, and it was so real. We were spending hours and hours. We were calling the police. We had investigators, and we found out it was like a kidnapping, and Taylor was gone. And I'm like, man, i got to watch, stop watching these police shows, you know what I'm saying? And I, I'm like, so it's like this feeling of terror, but then what happened? I woke up, and I realized it wasn't real. It was fake. It was a dream. But isn't that so often that you can get so consumed in life? Looking at everyone else's life, it seems so real, and the frustrations that you have and the feelings and the comparisons and I wish my life was that I wish, I wish, I wish, and then you realize what a saying, that's not real. That's fake. The end, the real, the truth is that God is good. And to those who are pure in heart, he will bless and he encourages and he will keep you and he will hold you. We wake up from our dream-like state of sinful comparison and we find ourselves with a paradigm shift where we step into the presence of God, knowing this, and this is what he tells us in verse 23 and 24, if you don't get anything else, I want you to look at this, verse 23 and verse 24, right into my favorite verse in verse 26, but verse 23 says ultimately three things. He he says this, look at all those, that that craziness, dreamlike state that I was living in, that wasn't real because the end thereof is judgment, but rather, those who follow Jesus, those who submit their lives to God, Jehovah, we know this, that He holds my hand. Look at that, verse uh, 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you, you hold my hand. Hold my right hand. Yesterday, Matt Peck shared a verse about this that I was already going to share today, but he shared Isaiah 41, a couple verses from that. But in verse 10, it says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's going to uphold us with his right hand. But I love in that same chapter, three verses later, it says, for I, the Lord your God, Hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. God holds us with his right hand, and he holds our right hand. <laughs> it's his strength, and it's the one that we are the ones needing. It's like our little, my little Judson who, who can walk around holding my hand, and he just wraps his whole hand around my pinky, right? That's all he needs, just a little pinky. It's like us with God. We just wrap everything we have around our our Lord's hand, thinking that we're the one holding on to you, God. And rather, we don't realize His entire hand's the one holding on to us. And then we recognize that in through that, it's not He just He holds us up, but He guides us. It says, "Not only does He hold us." Verse twenty three, verse twenty four. You guide me, so He guides me. He gives us counsel and wisdom and understanding to navigate complicated aspects of life. And then number three, verse twenty four. You receive me. Take us in. The end of the life of the wicked is judgment, but the end of the righteous is reception into glory. You receive me. You bring me in. When my time is up, I go to you. I will be taken into the holy habitation of God and dwell with him forever. That's your hope. That's your faith. That's everything that comes on. to that, That's everything. And so then, finally, we come to this end here where verse 25 through 27 and 28, it's, we, 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 we have this paradigm shift. We tell the truth to ourselves, but we've got to listen to the truth. We've got to listen to it. And honestly, I want you to think this through. Verse 25, and this is the one that hit me when I was up in that little cabin being scared by a mouse by myself in the woods. <laughs> verse, verse 25 hit me. Hit me. And it says, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I've heard that verse before, and my guess is if you've grown up in church before, you've probably heard that verse before too, but I want you to think about it. I want you to meditate it. I want you to soak it up. Who else do you have besides God? Who do you have in heaven? Is there truly nothing on earth that you desire besides Him? That's a tough question. We know the Sunday school answer. <laughs> Reminds me of, uh Brian Barbie shared this yesterday at the men's breakfast. It, it, you know, in John 6, it, Jesus is sharing the bread of life discourse and everybody leaves Him. Jesus looks over to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? Peter says, Lord, whom shall we go? Like, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else do we go? Why else? What, is, uh, what else is there to truly desire besides you? I got to recently watch that film. It's a it's, um, movie uh, called Silence. I don't know if you've seen it. It came out a couple years ago, I think, by director Martin Scorsese. Lead actors in the film are Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, and Liam Neeson, some big names. But it was set in Portugal and Japan in the 1640s. It's a film about Jesuit priests bringing faith and Christianity to Japan during its time when it was closed off to outside religion and violently aggressive towards Christians and persecuted them and martyred thousands of Christians in that time. And these priests went in. It's a story that doesn't have maybe the happiest ending, but it's a story that explores a lot of questions about faith. I'd say the movie probably raises more questions than it answers them. It's not a film for the light of heart. It's quite aggressive and difficult to watch, but it is something that got me thinking. uh, There's this scene. Andrew Garfield is a a father of Rodriguez, and he prays, and he says, I pray, but I am lost. Am I praying to silence? Ever felt that as if God isn't answering you? It's as if you know He's there and you know He's good, but you look around and you see the situations that everyone else seems to be prospering without me. You look at these situations and the situations they were put in, and it's exploring the question, to, do I really believe this to the point that I'm willing to dedicate my life to this? Do I really believe this, the willing that I'm willing to say that Jesus is my all in all? Am I willing to say that He is everything? Internalize that. Is there really... Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I was alone in the woods, there's that stillness, there's that truly kind of silence. And the wind blowing through the trees, and the birds chirping, and the mice rustling, and you have this, this silence of nothing. There's no notifications coming through, there's nobody begging for your attention, there's nothing for you to attend to, and I think at times in our modern age, we are fearful of the nothingness and the stillness, because we have to start thinking about the one who's speaking to us, God. (laughs) What's ripped away, I mean, sorry, what's left when everything else is ripped away? when you have nothing begging at your attention and craving to distract you to whatever searching f- aspect of entertainment that's, l- that's literally waiting for you, when there's nothing there, what's left? And, and I hope the thing that's left for us is our relationship with God. That thing that can't be taken, that thing that can't be moth and rust can't corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal that, it's an inheritance and it's a portion that's given to me that cannot be stolen no matter what happens in life, there's nothing. In verse 26, my flesh, my heart, my fail, yeah. I might be sick and die one day, but you know what? God is my strength, my heart. Verse 26, and my portion forever. He's my rock, that word strength there in verse 26 literally means rock. Other passages in the Psalms, it's translated rock, fortress, bulwark, This idea that he is my strength, he is my rock, he's my portion, he's what I receive. He's he's a portion of an inheritance that cannot depreciate in value. It only increases. It's priceless. It's forever. I love it. It says in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. That's the end of the matter here. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In verse 28, the final verse here as we close, is exactly where we began. told you it'd come full circle. We kind of started good. We went on to the depths of sorrow and frustration and difficulty. I just read a verse there from Lamentations where we find ourselves grappling with this. And then comes full circle back to God's goodness. Look what he says. For actually in verse 2 it says, but as for me. Then verse 28 he says, but for me. Where does he land? Where does he end? It is good to be near to God. Is it not? It is good to be near to God. And then he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge or my rock that I may tell of your works. Verse 27 says that there were people who were far from the Lord and they will perish, but those who are near to God will find refuge. You could say they will find rest for their souls. They will find peace And life, He can become your hiding place, your safety, and your rescue. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. Run far from Him, and you will find yourself and nothing else. Draw near to God; you will find yourself, your identity, your purpose, and your meeting, and your Savior, and your inheritance—a portion that can be given to you and it cannot be taken. So, so when the well might seem like it's running dry, when when at times we feel as if we don't know the answers to these complicated questions, we do know that God is good. And when you believe that God is good, you can find yourself maybe wanting other things, but we find ourselves back at that place where we started to go back to the beginning, the simple things of the gospel, that God is good. He is all that there is, and He is all that is good. There is no good without Him. We draw near to Him. We make Him our refuge. For ultimately, without Him, (laughs) where else do we go? What else do we have but with Him? is the wellspring of life, of eternal life, of peace and rest. So today, as a people of God, I hope that we can say it is good to be near to God. He's the strength of my life and in my heart. He's my portion forever. What do I have in heaven besides him? There's nothing I desire besides him. He is my refuge that today I can tell of all his works, of all the things he's done in my life. Let me tell you about how God's been working in my life today. Let me tell you about what he's done for me. Let me tell you about his faithfulness and his goodness. Let me now go from this place telling other people about God's goodness in my life. And may that be a testimony for you today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your truth. we need these things to preach into our souls sometimes. God, I don't always have the answers and I know sometimes I'm searching for them. Yet I'm thankful for your faithfulness. Thankful for your love. Thankful for these people in this church. May you continue to build it, strengthen it, encourage us. May your spirit draw us together. May you be the strength of our heart. May you be better than everything and anything that we wouldn't desire anything on earth but you. And from that, Lord, we would we would serve, we would live. Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.